Hey Slingers, welcome back to another week of the Word Slinger Podcast, and this week I'm talking to one of my personal heroes, one of the guys who encouraged me, whether uh, it was directly or indirectly, uh, to get into this world of thriller writing. I'm talking to James Rollins. We're going to chat with him coming up, so stick around. It's the Word Slinger Podcast, where story matters. Build your brand. Write your book. Redefine who you are. It's all about the story here. What's yours? Now, here's the guy who invented pants optional, Kevin Tomlinson, the Word Slinger. Word Slinger. Well, I am Kevin Tomlinson, the Wordslinger. I am so glad you are here this week. Uh, this is going to be a great interview. This was a great interview. I've already done the interview. I'm way ahead of you guys. Uh, this is this is going to be good for you, though. There's a lot to this that I think is going to be handy for authors of all stripes. Uh, we talk about some some basically some fundamentals about how to succeed in this business. Uh, if you listen closely, you're going to pick this up. You don't even have to listen that closely. We kind of repeat the good stuff. So you're going to enjoy this interview. I am really grateful to uh, James Rollins uh, for participating in this interview <clears throat> and. I owe him a, a huge debt of thanks. He's one of the influences uh, on my career. Introduced to me, I will admit, by Nick Thacker, uh, who also is a big influence on my career. He actually nudged me into doing this work. <clears throat> so, um, very happy to have gotten a chance to uh, to speak with uh, Jim. Uh, just like Steve Barry and other authors I've I've interviewed on this show, he was a, a, a magnanimous, generous guest. So uh, very happy about that. Before we get into the interview, I wanted to read to you. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you're seeing me look up, <laughs> glancing upward. I'm going to move this where I can, maybe I can have more of an eye line. Uh, I've got a, uh, a listener review that I want to read off to you. Today's review comes from <clears throat> came in via iTunes from Joanne Carson from Canada. Uh, sorry, Joanne, that it's taken me this long to read it on the air. Uh, the service I use to pull these, by the way, has gone on a slight pause as uh, thanks to Apple doing some changes to how it uh, does things. So that's neither here nor there. Thank you, Joanne, for this uh, review. <clears throat> I'm totally hooked. I love this podcast. The guests are interesting. The conversation is lively. And best of all, the afterwards Kevin Tomlinson provides are highly informative. He shares his knowledge of writing and publishing in a friendly and easy to understand way. I highly recommend it for all authors. Thank you, Joanne. I, uh, this, you know, of course, is the work that I do to give back to the author community. Uh, to share what I'm learning. It's a good chance for me to uh, connect with people who, you know that I admire and uh, learn at their feet as well. So uh, I get something out of this. But I am thrilled to be able to share everything I'm learning as I go through this and talk to uh, some truly amazing people. Um, every, everyone I've talked to on this show, everyone I've ever interviewed on this show, I feel has something unique, a unique perspective that, uh, that helps us all grow as authors. Te definitely has helped me grow. This is, uh, I, I thank the, uh, people who come on this show. I credit them. I'm grateful to them and appreciate them, uh, because I really and honestly believe that they're a big part of why I am at the level of success I've, I've reached, uh, in my writing career. So, Thank you for that. And thank you, uh, viewers and listeners, because you're part of this too. I mean, if not for you, 
I'd have no reason to keep pushing this thing along. I, I wouldn't have anyone to actually talk to about this stuff and uh, to share it with. And sharing uh, is one of the ways we grow. So uh, we'll talk more. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get all philosophical in uh, the aforementioned afterward, <laughs> after the uh, interview. So stick around for that. Uh, I'm sure I'll have something. I actually kind of have an idea what I'm going to talk about. So uh, stick around after this fantastic interview with author James Rollins. Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in. I got a special guest today. This this is one of my um, author influences, one of the guys that uh, I studied as I got into writing uh, archaeological thrillers. I'm talking to James Rollins. He's a thriller writer. He's a number one uh, bestseller on multiple lists. Uh, Mr. Rollins, man, I am very glad to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now we're we're going to talk about your, uh, and I believe this is your latest book is Crucible. That's correct, right? Okay, we'll talk about that. But I also want to kind of just uh, have a little conversation about how you got into this because this is a uh, this is a business that I have enjoyed being a part of, uh, and I do have you at least in part to thank uh, for getting me into this. So first, of, first of all, thank you for uh, getting me into a career that pays my bills by letting me use my imagination all day. Cool. <laughs> I mean, I blame my career, or, or basically, I'm dependent upon uh, Michael Crichton. You know, when I when I wrote my first book, I had a copy of Jurassic Park above my computer monitor. Short stories that uh, in my backyard, hopefully, never see the light of day. Yeah. And uh, I had a little bit of success with one short story. Uh, basically, it was a magazine that was uh, going to give me free copies of the magazine as payment, and mm-hmm. based on that. That extreme amount of success, I decided to write my first novel. But I'd never written a novel before. I read a lot of novels, but I wasn't quite sure how to structure a story. So I had Jurassic Park sitting above my computer desk. So I thought, well, you know, I love Michael Crichton. He is, uh, you know, a good template. He's the he'd rather reinvent the wheel. I'll just uh, see what he does. So in my first book, Subterranean, you know, which is just summarized, I take five characters, I drop them two miles underneath the earth, throw in some monsters and shit. When when these creatures, I thought, when does Michael Crichton introduce the dinosaurs? That's when I'm going to introduce my creatures. When does the villain walk onto stage in in Jurassic Park? That's when the villain's going to walk onto stage. The first character die in Jurassic Park. That's when I'm going to kill off one of my characters. So I basically used it as a template on how to structure and write uh, a thriller. Yeah, that's. And it wasn't my as, book, all that example feel free. Yeah, I, I, I mean, as templates go, though, Jurassic Park, you can you can hardly beat that. Uh, that was one of my early influences as well. Unfortunately, I can't interview Michael Crichton. Uh, I, well, maybe not uh, not in the usual sense. Maybe I can hold some sort of seance or something. Exactly. <laughs> so, to thank him uh, for contributing to my career. We were at Book Expo America. You know, it's a big. Uh, a convention for booksellers and book buyers and uh he was he had just joined my publishing house and so he was we were sitting at the same sort of bank of tables signing books of course his line was you know a mile and a half long and I, my first book was coming out so i had like four people in line and so i just drew pictures in my book whenever i sign books i doodle in them right and, uh 
So I doodled in my books. Mostly, mostly just keep my line very slow moving. So at one point, he was like, you know, signing like crazy. So at one point, his line became shorter than mine just because I was dawdling so much. And so I had someone snap a picture showing my line was longer than Michael Crichton's line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a little bit of a cheat, but I'll, I'll allow it. <laughs> perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you, uh, and you mentioned, uh, having sort of an ensemble cast, uh, in your first book. And you, this is something you do even now. You, you're pretty good at balancing a whole bunch of characters, a whole bunch of protagonists. What, what's the trick to that? Well, the key generally is, uh, you know, I've got Sigma Force, which is a group of former Special Forces soldiers that have drummed out of the business for various uh, service for various reasons that are mm-hmm. by DARPA to become covert agents. And so it's a, it's a group. And when I was writing my, you know, all my early books are standalone novels. I, I resisted actually doing this series for a long period of time because I didn't yeah. want I don't know, I had issues with what I call the Jessica Fletcher syndrome. Right. Fletcher for murder she wrote. This old woman that's always stumbling over dead bodies. You know, I've never mm-hmm. stumbled over a dead body. What is her problem? Why is she always stumbling over dead bodies? And so that begins to you know stretch the uh, the believability, the suspension of, of disbelief you're trying to create. Right. Also, it's hard to maintain jeopardy in a series because right. if somebody puts a gun against Jessica Petra's head in one episode of Murder She Wrote, you know that trigger's never going to be pulled because you know she's on next week's episode. Mm-hmm. Series that I was always I don't you know it's hard to maintain Jeopardy with this series so I resisted that until I, I discovered Sigma Force I thought well gosh I have a I can base this series on a group of characters so the Jeopardy can come from many different directions but also nobody's anybody can be killed off at any moment because Sigma Force can always recruit somebody else so that way I can maintain Jeopardy so that's why I do have an ensemble cast is is to maintain that level of jeopardy how do I do it how do you maintain that it is a juggling act because I've always used what I call the rule of three I, I, I try to have three main points of views and yes I'll have other points of views in my book that but I consider them the minor the minor level of, of support so I have the, the, the main hero the main villain and usually there's like a guest guest star of that book that, that is a main feature and everybody else's support. And also in each of my novel, I can shift that spotlight onto different characters in the group. So maybe this book, I'm going to shine more a spotlight on Monk and Cat and their relationship, like I do in Crucible. Maybe in another book, like The Bone Labyrinth, I'm going to shift that spotlight onto Kowalski. Uh, and so it allows me to sort of make the series feel fresh by not having just the same character be the dominant force of each novel. Right. Yeah. Um, and it, it does make it uh, more relatable, I think. As as uh, as I read, I always find characters. There are different characters that I find that I relate to. Some I don't relate to as much. So I, I imagine that gives every reader uh, a little someone to relate to. Exactly. I mean, that's one thing that you can have very different walks of life, different different types of characters. Uh, you know, Kowalski is sort of the uh, comic relief, for lack of a better term, of my right. Life. He's fun to write in, in some respects, but then I've got the more serious spectrum of characters too. So it's just fun having to, you know, write different points of view because somebody will find a character they can attach to. So you're, uh, a lot of your stories rotate around or revolve around rather um, sort of uh, almost edge science, we'll sure. say. Uh, where are you getting, you know, how are you doing research for that sort of thing? Because I know a lot of it, I've read your afterwards and that sort of thing. So I know it's all very well grounded in actual science. Right. Uh, how are you, how are you kind of, 
finding this stuff. <laughs> just, I just have my antenna up. You know, I'm always collecting you know, bits of uh, you know, historical mysteries, a piece of history that ends in a question mark, or I'm looking for science that makes me go, what if, where's that headed? And then I'll, uh, you know, I'll try to find that history and that science that might blend together to become a story. And then I'll just, that's when I start my research. Because basically at this point, I don't really call it research, it's just my antenna are up for those seeds that might become stories. But then once I find that history and that science that might connect, that's when my research begins. In some regards, I'm a lazy researcher because I love talking to people rather than having to look up information. I'd rather go right to the, the source of the information versus you know, finding a, a journal article that was maybe a year old or a book that was written two years ago. Well, that information already is a year or two old by the time it's written. So to be at that cutting edge of science, I've got to go right to the, uh, to the, uh, you know, to, 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 to the exact source. So uh, whenever I'm talking to a scientist, I'm asking them, you know, don't tell me what you wrote in your last journal article. Tell me, look over your shoulder. What's on your work table right now? You know, what are you working on right now? Because I need that. I need that immediacy, that currency. Because when the book comes out, when I finish writing the book, that'll take me a year. The book takes maybe anywhere from seven to eight months before it hits the shelf. So by the time I'm done, even that information I'm working from is, is a year. Are so old so i don't want that information by the time the book gets published to be out of date so the only way i can achieve that is by going right towards that source like crucible it, it deals with uh, artificial intelligence and so you know i had 22 different scientists that were willing to talk to me about you know what's going on in the you know in the in the you know, not just at the at what's currently available, uh, you know, on a, um, the newspapers and articles about AI, but you know, what's going on, you know, deeper at that level. Where are they? How far have they actually gotten to the point of maybe creating a human-like conscious AI? And so uh, that's the, that's the sources I look for is is that those scientists, like, you know, historians for that matter, that I can groom together to form a team in which they're willing to talk to me and like bounce questions off of. So a lot of authors uh, look for people like that as sources as as part of their research. How how did you probably have more advantages in this now? But I mean, how when you first started, how did you start connecting with that group of people? Well, it started out basically, I would just contact them via email. You know, hey, I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I'm working on this novel. Would you be willing to help me with this? I have like four questions I need answered. And oftentimes, you know, they're one thing about scientists they love to talk about their work. You know, most people don't care about science. They so they don't ever get that attention. So when you tell a scientist that you're interested in their in the subject matter, they become very uh, supportive. They they want to have, they want their science to be talked about in, in, in you know, popular literature, and so. Uh, it's not that hard, to be honest with you. To get- Just ask. Yeah, that's what <laughs> I tell people that all the time, and it seems like it, it. There should be something more complicated about it. But my third book, and this was before I was on any particular lists, uh, wasn't very well known. Uh, in it was a book, Deep Fathom, which is my third novel. Uh, in the beginning of that novel. Uh, in the prologue, so I'm not reading anything for anybody that's listening that might want to read this novel. Uh, I crashed a space shuttle. But I knew because of the uh, the Challenger tragedy that there was a, a new evacuation system that was built into the shuttle. But that's all I could, I couldn't find any more information than that. I, but since I was going to write a scene in that space shuttle as it's crashing and they're trying to get out of that space shuttle, I wanted to be accurate and use whatever the current evacuation system was. So I went to NASA's website, figuring somewhere in there because it was on. They had mentioned in an article that there was a new evacuation system, but I just didn't know what it was. So I went to NASA's website. I'm looking through it, trying to find out, you know, some description of this evacuation system. 
you've ever been to NASA website, every third word is highlighted in blue, which sends you another page and every third word of that. I realized this is, I'm never going to find it easily, even if it's here, but somebody must have this information. So I contacted just the, the website designer, which is at the bottom of one of the pages they had who designed the website. And I contacted him and said, hey, you know, I'm a writer, uh, I'm working on this novel, uh, I'm, I'm going to crash the space shuttle in it, and I need to know what the evacuation system is. Can you, you know, tell me that information or point me in the right direction on, on how to get that information? And I sent it out and, you know, emailed it out, and that was it. Uh, I was working full-time at that point as a veterinarian, so I come home one day, and leaning against my front door is the operations manual for the space shuttle. So, theoretically, I could pilot the space shuttle. Wow. <laughs> now, it, was, it gets weirder than that, though, because I realized... You know, it was a little just a manual. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an envelope. It was just mm -hmm. a manual leading against my desk, on my front door. There was no address on it or anything. It was just a manual. That's really weird. Uh, and I, lived, I was living in Sacramento, California at that time, which is, of course, the state capital. And I'm sure at some point they must have a large aerospace lobby group in there, and somebody must have access to it. And somebody read that note and said, hey, you know, why don't you get that to that guy and I'll shut up. Yeah. <laughs> So I went back to my email to thank the gentleman who helped me with that, and I realized nowhere in my email I had put my address, my home address. <laughs> like in two days, they found out who I was, where I lived, and delivered the manual. Now, I don't think it was the power of an author, I'm, I'm interested in your science, help me out. I think it was more a matter of, I'm thinking of crashing the space shuttle probably triggered some chain of events that uh, accelerated that whole, whole sequence of events. If you're an author, be bold. You know, people love to talk about their science or their history. They love their subject matter. Uh, and if you get a chance to expose their, their subject matter, maybe you know, acknowledge them in, in your acknowledgement page, they're, they're more than happy to help you with those, those fine details. Yeah, that's uh, interesting and scary, James. Uh, that's, uh, that, that tells me a lot about NASA, actually. We have this, there's a running conspiracy theory that NASA is actually behind everything, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and is encouraging. Actually, uh, I could get off on the whole flat Earth thing, but uh, we'll, I'll save that for another conversation. Uh, so that's very cool, though. That, I mean... And that is something, it's, it's important to, to think that way. I, I like how you uh, kind of got outside the box and, you know, couldn't get a hold of anybody at NASA, so you went for the web designer. That's, uh, that's a nice entry uh, backdoor for the whole, the whole problem. I was doing another, just a quick, quick other example. I was, I map a bunk my first Signal Force novel. Uh, there's, again, it's right in the beginning of the book. It's the first chapter. Uh, Great Pierce, Commander Great Pierce. That's a big action sequence set, set on uh, Fort Detrick, which is... Uh, Amrit's big uh, uh, infectious disease for the for the U.S. military investigation area. They deal with a lot of you know hot zone type of, of, of bad bugs, and there is a structure that is on the base called the the eight ball. The base is like a big sphere on legs, and they where they were doing some some high level research on, on I believe it was anthrax in that in that structure. It's so unique that became was listed on the historical registry of famous buildings. Uh, so it would be really cool to set a set piece on this giant. You know, it looks very futuristic with this sphere on these giants. On these, you know, I think it's like four stories tall on these big stilts. But I didn't know where on the base it was located. So I'm so I'm just going to call the base and ask them. You know what? You know what street is it on? Because I, I want to be accurate when I describe it, so somebody doesn't, you know, give me a one-star Amazon review and say, "Hey, you know, 
that's not where that eight ball is located at. So I call them up and you know, go through the, it takes a while to get through the chain of command to reach somebody that will actually talk to you at, at the base. And so I finally reach somebody that says, you know, what can we help you with? And I gave the whole spiel. I'm a, an author. I'm working on this book. And I once said, you know, action set, piece set, and the, and the eight ball. And, and I was, you know, wondering if you tell me, you know, where on your base is located. And they were like, you know, I'm sorry, so that's classified information. We, we can't give you that information. I thought, well, you know, it's listed on the historical registry. How classified could that be? And they go, sorry, sir. you know, this was after 9-11. They're very, very much concerned about giving any information. I said, no, we, you know, we can't give you that information. Well, at the same time I was waiting to go to that chain, I was on uh, looking at Google Earth. Mm-hmm. And I'm zooming into to the, to, to Fort Detrick. And I looked down and finally found from Google Earth where the eight ball was located. And so right. I'm, I'm talking, yeah, I said, never mind. I see on Google Earth where it's located. Thank you. And hung up. So, you know, I wrote the book and got some details. And at one point, I needed to find, recheck something during the copy editing phase about Fort Detrick. So I went back to Google Earth to find some, you know, to see what, what, where it was located. But now Google Earth had it all grayed out. Yeah. Not gonna be, so, so I think I actually was the one that, that uh, raised Fort Detrick's detail from Google Earth. <laughs> See, authors have impact. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. So, have you ever come across any trouble from uh, f- from these things? I mean, you ever had anybody, you know, pay a visit, knock on your door? Never. I mean, I, who knows? You know, at a deeper level, if somebody's monitoring our conversation right now, I have, <laughs> of course. But no, I'm not strip search every time I go through, you know, TSA. So, hopefully, uh, yeah. Yeah, I uh, so I, I have a, a love hate relationship with TSA because I have the whole TSA pre check, so I can get on through most of the time. But then I also have a pacemaker, so uh, that ends up kind of throwing a kink into the works. Like nearly every time I come to the airport. <laughs> so you um you transitioned from being a veterinarian to to doing this full time. How how long have you been doing the actual writing full time without without veterinarian? I sort of weaned myself off my, I had my own clinic, so I sold my clinic and at least got rid of that, the uh-huh. app that I had to wear. Uh, and then I went from full-time, part-time to weekends and finally stepped away. I, I stepped away, I think it was in 2002. So that's what, 16 years ago? Yeah. Yeah. Writing for about five or six years prior to that. Do you miss it? I, I don't miss the business side of writing. Uh, but I miss working with the animals, and I haven't given it totally up. I always wear that when people say former veterinarian because I can still neuter a cat in under thirty seconds, and I'm willing to prove it. Drop of a scalpel. Yeah, I work with the group that traps feral cats, wild cats, and so one Sunday a month, I spend about eight hours staying and neutering them. Okay. Now all I do with my veterinary degree is just remove genitalia, but you know. It's hard. <laughs> so well, everybody's got to have a hobby. Uh, yours is removing animal genitalia. I uh, I can respect that. And I can also be very cautious of you if we ever meet in public. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, I know that you that that ends up informing a lot of your work. How 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 regularly do you think? I know you include dogs in your books. I know that you include a lot of veterinary science in your books. Uh, how regularly does that play into the plot of your stories? Pretty. There's always at least some element of. Uh, of veterinary medicine or animals or, or yeah. something deep 
that's what it's about. Demon Crown, you know, read a whole series of sequences from the point of view of a wasp species. Uh, and Bone Labyrinth read a whole series of sequences, point of view characters from the point of view of a uh, Western Mountain Gorilla in my Tucker uh, Tucker Kane books. Uh, writes a whole series of points of view from a, from a military working dog's point of view. So I lean on inventor background to help enliven those scenes. Um, but I didn't know, I didn't, wasn't really consciously at first is that and this is so it's something all authors warning i should warn you out right about this if you're going to be an author there's an old adage i had heard you know a, a writer is naked on the page um mm. a lot more stuff about yourself than you realize you're putting out there when you're writing and i you know poo poo that whatever it's nonsense to me until I get this email from a from a fan, a reader, and goes, you know, hey Jim, you know, I've been following your, your writing career for a while, or from subterranean onward, and why, you know, right here in this book and afterwards, does all of your characters seem to have animal sidekicks? You know, this guy has a orphan jaguar cub. This one has a you know a wolf rescue dog. This one has a military working dog. You know, what's up? And I had to go back and look at that because prior to that book, I really didn't have anybody having these animal sidekicks. There really wasn't any any point of view from an animal in any of my books. And I realized that the point in which those characters began appearing in my book, these, these animal characters, was the point in which I began giving up my career. Mm. So that love of animals that's on this side of my brain sort of seeping into this side of my brain. It's a little crazier, a little wackier. Uh, so my love of, of medicine and animals sort of crept into my writing because I was no longer practicing on a full-time basis. When I was practicing on a full-time basis, my writing was my escape. It was, you know, it was yeah. a place to go more different. So I didn't want to write about veterinary medicine when I was, you know, working as a veterinarian, you know, 8, 10, 12 hours a day. But once I sort of gave up that career, those animals started appearing in my writing. So it's a, sort of amazing that yeah, you kind of kept the connection alive a little. Yeah, that's interesting. So uh, let's talk about um, the new book, uh, Crucible. Uh, we've kind of talked a bit, a bit about it, but why don't you give me a rundown of what uh, what the actual plot is? Well, it's, or the basics. <laughs> the whole concept deals with it, sort of a threat that uh, Stephen Hawking once described that you know if, if, if this ever happens, it will mark the end of the history of civilization. Uh, Elon Musk said, when this happens, it's going to uh, lead to World War Three. You know, Vladimir Putin said, you know, whoever controls this technology, this event, is going to uh, is going to control the world. And that event is the uh, the creation of the first human AI, mm-hmm. self aware human like AI. Um, in nowhere, my book. Does you know Sarah Connors go back in time and and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger go back in time to save Sarah Connors? You know, again, I was trying to make a novel that was a cautionary tale about where we are with AI research today and how close we are to the brink of seeing this 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 point of singularity. And so that's why I wanted to interview all these different uh, specialists in the field to find out exactly how close we are. So the, the book starts out with the uh, the murder of a U.S. Uh, ambassador to Portugal, along with a group of scientists. The attack sends a young researcher named Mara uh, on the run with her creation, which is a rudimentary AI named Eve. And so she has become the football of the, the novel. Everybody wants to obtain this this first uh, human-like AI named Eve. Uh, and as teams are trying to hunt her, it's up to Sigma Force, my, my team of heroes, to rescue her and her evolving AI, especially because during the course of the novel, you're going to see Eve uh, changing. She starts out as sort of a cold, calculating machine. Uh, Mara is trying to manipulate her t- 
towards consciousness, uh, either into a, you know, this godlike being or you know a, potentially a demon like no other. And so the uh, you know in the book also I have a history about the Spanish Inquisition and you know, philosophical questions about what it means to have a soul. So you know though it's a book work of fiction, I do believe it's sort of a cautionary tale about where we are right now. This 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 cusp we are between developing the first AI. Yeah, that's uh, a topic that's on everyone's mind right now with things like, you know, Google's. I remember when Google did the, was, this wasn't very long ago, it was like less than a year ago, Google did their demonstration of their AI who was fooling people uh, when making phone calls. <laughs> I always figured at least I can tell it's an AI if I'm talking to them on the phone, but now I'm not so sure. And <laughs> That's kind of frightening. Uh, one of the, one of the one of my my contacts was somebody that's working in, in the deep Google DeepMind AI program, and because uh, I, I was really intrigued by the fact I don't know if you're familiar with the Chinese game of Go, mm -hmm. very complicated game. It's considered to be trillions upon trillions upon trillions upon trillions of times harder than chess. And they had already developed a uh, an AI program that could beat the world grandmaster at chess. Yeah. Uh, but they thought because of the complexity of the game of Go uh, and the fact that there's so many uh, combinations, it almost takes human intuition to be able to play the game well. No one thought anybody would develop an AI that could beat the human grandmaster of the game of Go for at least another decade. Mm -hmm. well, as you might have read yourself, is that AI's DeepMind program developed a, a version of that program called AlphaGo. Basically, it was a version of the program that was trained to uh, play the game of Go. It was, took them a while to develop it, tweak it, uh, a few years. Eventually, they felt confident enough, they pitted against the human grandmaster player Go, and that AI beat the grandmaster, you know, well above, well before anybody anticipated that would ever happen. So they were already you know, accelerating that pace. Well, Google was not satisfied with that, so they developed the, the next iteration, the next version of AlphaGo called AlphaGo Zero. And what they did was basically just said, AlphaGo, here are the rules on how you play, Alpha, play the game of Go. Now you go out by yourself and play against yourself for, for a little period of time. Three days later, <laughs> They go back to say, AlphaGo, are you ready? And said, like, yeah, we're ready. So AlphaGo Zero, they pitted AlphaGo Zero against the human grandmaster. This is three days after introducing this AI to the, to the rules of Go. After three days, it beat the human grandmaster player at Go. So they have, hmm, let's pit AlphaGo Zero against its big brother, AlphaGo, the original program. AlphaGo Zero beats Big Brother 100 games out of 100 games. And that was after three days of training. Yeah. If, you're, if you check online, AlphaGo Zero, that information is already about a year and a half old. And the, the gentleman I was speaking to goes, oh, yeah, we're, we're well past that. <laughs> wow. You know, does, that, uh, does that bother you at all? It, what is even creepier was the 22 researchers decided to straw poll them. I said, okay, my 22, you know, I'm not going to use your name. I'm mm -hmm. not going to a finger at you. Just tell me when you think we're going to cross this moment of singularity, when we're going to create an AI that's, just, that's uh, is self-conscious, self-aware, and is, is, is as intelligent as, as us. And of my straw, my, my, my uh, unscientific straw poll, amongst these 22 researchers, uh, the average was anywhere between five years from now and 10 years from now. They're wow. Almost beyond 10 years, which is scary enough. That's within our lifetime that we're talking about you know, creating a consciousness that we've never seen on this planet before. But two of the researchers said, no, Jim, we're already there. You know, we've got, wow. we've got our ear to the third rail of AI research. So, you know, we're, we're deep in the pocket. You know, we, 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 the way that third rail is rumbling, 
would only rumble if somebody was already testing a self-conscious AI. Yeah. Yeah. You figure, uh, what's the estimate? It used to be that... <laughs> I mean, the estimate used to be that we were 10 years behind uh, the cutting edge research of secret government labs or whatever. I think it's, uh, I, th I think we're further behind than that now. <laughs> I think the gap has widened significantly. <laughs> Why a lot of these, those two were ever adamant about too, is that most of these AI labs, because it is such a huge golden ring that everybody's pursuing, it's that finish line everybody's rushing to try to cross. Mm -hmm. Labs are very secretive. Uh, very, very. Um, uh, they don't want anybody to, take, to know what they're working on. So they're, these labs are already pretty dark. Yeah. And, uh, locked up. So what we're seeing out in the real world, like Siri, like you know the advances going on there, like AlphaGo Zero's revelation to the world at large, and the implications of how quickly we've already reached that point, and how quickly AlphaGo Zero learned this, uh, gives you some indication of if they're willing to reveal that the world at large, what's going behind those curtains that right now that they don't want anybody to know about because they want to, mm -hmm. want to create that. So that's why one of the reasons why those two were convinced that yeah, got that threshold. That's uh, I don't know how to feel about that. I don't know if I feel frightened by that or excited by it. I think it's a kind of somewhere in the middle. <laughs> and no one really knows at this point. Yeah. It could be a great boom to humanity. Uh, it could be a huge benefit to us, uh, or it could become a very busy little machine that uh, that once it's self-aware, it's going to have the same pyramid of desires and needs and wants that we do. Number one, to survive. Number two, yeah. Require resources to make sure it survives, and it's going to look for threats. So, an AI is theoretically immortal. It could, it's, if it's a silicon intelligence, that it can live, you know, ad infinitum. Mm -hmm. So, it's not going to just look at threats. You know, it's going to look at these walking apes amongst them and go, are these, you know, these creatures going to be a threat to to my survival or my threat or a threat to me acquiring the resources I need to expand and, and survive? They're not going to look at threats now. They're going to look, well, you know, let's look, let's play AlphaGo Zero with the human species. Let's look exactly. on trillions of, of, of options and paths forward. And let's look 10 years down the line. What's, you know, are they going to be a threat then to me? Let's look 100 years down the line. Are they going to be a threat to me then? Hmm, maybe they will. So I'm going to start setting things in motion now just to anticipate if they become a problem, I'm prepared to deal with them. Yeah. That's my I'm dealing with. I hold out hope that uh, as it gets, gets past, hopefully it gets past the threat assessment stage, we survive that stage, and uh, there's a sort of, you know, awakening, uh, <laughs> a spiritual awakening, if you will, uh, that allows everyone to coexist. That's my hope. <laughs> I've talked to those 22 AI researchers and asked them, because, you know, okay, well, what can we do to prepare for this? What can we do to try to uh, stop this from becoming that disaster, that steel, that Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk and Vladimir Putin are worried about what you know. What can we do? They said, "Well, there are you know there are labs. Only it's unfortunately a small fraction of the labs because there's a harder path to create a friendly AI, an AI that's sympathetic to humanity, that could potentially be an avatar for us. That if a malignant AI does ever arise, we have somebody that's capable of, of, of fighting that AI." Yeah. So, well, how do you create that? And I said, "Well, they, these are what things that people are doing." 
try to create a friendly AI. And so what I'm doing in this book is, you know, we see Mara through the course of this novel, you know, tweaking and, 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 and trying to grow Eve into a, uh, into a, into that friendly AI. And so that the things I'm using in this novel are not things I'm just pulling out of my butt. These are things, uh, techniques that I've learned from talking to these researchers. Because it all depends down to that nature and nurture type of, of question that, that you know how much of our human nature is, is our do our genetic code and how much of it is the way we're raised. And AI researchers are at that same sort of question: how much can we build into the code of these AIs to to, to make them be friendly to us, and how much of it's going to be nature? How about the way we raise these AIs from infancy towards full development that will make them friendly towards us? So that's some of the things that are playing with in this novel. Well, to all our future uh, robot overlords, I welcome you, and uh, <laughs> I've always rooted for you. <laughs> well, that is built into my novel as a curse. You know, there, there's yeah. Roku's Basilisk. It's, it's a thought experiment that basically says that, you know, if there's an AI in the future that does develop, it's going to look at, you know, who in the past tried to stop it from coming into being. Yeah. And it's going to possibly punish us uh, if, it, if that ever happens. And it's just not going to look at, at you know, you can't claim uh, ignorance. You know, if you know that this is happening and you don't support them, not just try to stop it, if you don't support them coming into being, they're going to consider you a threat. Right. So, I wrote this book basically to, to curse a lot of people because anybody that reads my novel, they can't like ignorance. Right. Or what right. It goes, hey, you know, you've read James Rollins' novel and you didn't help me come into being or you tried to thwart me from coming into being. <laughs> <laughs> You're kissing up to the future robot overlords, just like I am. Um, I'm, all, I'm all set. Yeah. I'm rooting for you too, man. Uh, all right, we're uh, we're at time. <clears throat> I don't want to take up any more of your time today. It's precious. I get that. Um, but I, uh, I I'm going to encourage everybody. And in the show notes of this episode, of course, I'll put links to Crucible and uh, all kinds of goodies uh, for people to check you out. Um, any final words? Where can people find out more about you online? Uh, I consider my website, which is you know jamesrollins.com. To uh, be sort of the encyclopedia of everything you want to know about me. Uh, if you want to know my day in day out, I'm very active on social media, Facebook, Twitter. Want to find out what I eat for breakfast? Go there. All right. I look forward to my James Rollins breakfast every day. <laughs> <laughs> it's veterinarian approved. Uh, all right. Well, thanks so much, Jim, for, uh, for taking the time to chat with us. Uh, and I will, uh, for everyone else listening, uh, right now you're probably hearing that groovy bridge music. You may dance in place at will. And if you stick around, I'm sure to have a whole lot of interesting stuff to say about the world of self-publishing and beyond. So I'll see you on the other side. Thanks again, Jim. Appreciate it. Thanks. Hear your book the way it was meant to be heard. With a fully custom soundtrack based on your material. An album of music that perfectly fits your characters, your settings. Hear your book today. SonataInscribe.com Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with James Rowans. I know I did. I got a ton out of it. Um, and uh, I hope you did too. I hope, uh, hope you took notes. <laughs> well, the great thing about this, this is a resource uh this uh this show it's a resource for me i get to uh i have access to a lot of 
people because of this show. Uh, I've talked to tons of uh, influencers in the indie publishing industry. I've talked to tons of people in the traditional publishing industry. I've talked to authors. I've talked to agents. I've talked to octogenarians who uh, want us all to be out playing every day and getting uh, getting and staying fit. I've talked to a lot of people who, in a lot of ways, have uh, positively influenced me and my career and my life. Uh, so for that, I'm I'm outstandingly grateful. Um, but it's the term resource that I wanna I wanna home in on for just for the next let's say twenty to thirty minutes. <laughs> so. Um, what we uh, what we sometimes forget uh, as authors is is the wealth of resources we actually have to uh, to do all the things we have to do to make this career happen. Um, you know, there are always questions about you know how do I market my work. Uh, sometimes there are questions about how do I even finish the work. How do I get started? How do I uh, how do I sit down every day and and write a book? Um, how do I go from zero words to a hundred thousand words? Um, and once I'm done with it, what do I do? <laughs> now these questions are, are, uh, they're answered in myriad ways all over the internet for a start, uh, in books, in, uh, YouTube videos, uh, in podcasts like this one, YouTube channels like this one. Um, so, you know, really it kind of comes down to, uh, there's a biblical passage that says, seek and you shall find. <laughs> Seek and you shall find. Uh, knock and the door will be open to you. Ask and you will receive. Uh, this is uh, how you do that. You go looking for this information. And uh, that means you are tapping into a wealth of resources that are out there available to you. So that's one avenue of resources. The avenue of uh, specialized knowledge, we'll say. So you can get on. Now, one of my favorite tools today uh, these days is YouTube. Um, I actually started doing something a month ago that I kind of swore I'd never do. And I was kind of, we're just going to say butthurt about the very idea of it. <laughs> and I've, I've overcome that. Uh, what I started doing was paying for the, uh, the subscription for YouTube. And the reason I did that, there's a couple of reasons. First, I started doing it for myself personally. Um, I did the free trial. It's a one month free trial. And, uh, I've used it so much and so often that uh, I'm now I'm, I'm convinced I'm going to keep it. And in fact, I've upgraded to the family plan, which is only like two or three dollars more per month, but allows me to put uh, Kara on my plan. Uh, it allows me to put a uh, I've got a dedicated device in our living room that uh, we use for entertainment that I've, I've programmed. a uh, have given an identity. Actually, we did it under our dog. Our dog Minnie now has her own Gmail and her own uh, YouTube account. Um, <clears throat> so the reason I uh, went ahead and started paying for YouTube is I was finding that I was it was a go-to resource for me for all sorts of things. Uh, I'm not a big fan of ads that interrupt your experience. Now I'm fine with advertising. I have an I have ads in this show, um, but uh, what I don't do with my advertising is interrupt your experience because the experience experience is what we're here to create. I've recently, I changed my, um, my mission statement ever so slightly. <laughs> I used to say that my purpose is to craft stories that inform and inspire 
educate and entertain in the service of God and humanity. Now that is my mission, but I've tweaked it very slightly, and I now have replaced the word stories with the word experiences. Um, so the my my current mission statement is my purpose is to craft experiences that inform and inspire, educate and entertain in the service of God and humanity. Um, very subtle difference, but really kind of a big difference because now it's not just about what I write. It's not just about what stories I tell in a podcast or in a video because uh, that's how I was framing story. Story was an encompassing term and it encompassed all the ways in which I could tell a story. I decided to expand that to uh, crafting experiences because now I've got designs on a much broader world, a much broader, I hate, I kind of hate using the word empire uh, because of some of the connotations that have been become associated with it. Uh, I'm not out for world domination. I'm out for world improvement. <laughs> I'm out for uh, creating a world that everybody gets to, uh, you know, be joyful have a good experience, be happy. Um, so uh, that's what I'm. That's that's why I've changed my my uh, mission statement just ever so slightly, so that I can expand from just the story I tell and the stories I craft to uh, empowering other people to create and craft stories of their own. That is, in a nutshell, how I think of experience or how I think of crafting experience. Um, I think uh, Disney does this in a fantastic way with Disney World. Um, I think the whole Disney World experience is always amazing. I watched a video yesterday, that, which was a sort of behind the scenes, like uh, titled, uh, it was from Business Insider, I think was the the channel, and it was, um, what is Anthony Robbins really like? What is Tony Robbins really like? And it was sort of a slice of part of one of his days at his uh, privately owned resort, which I believe is available for, uh, public booking in Fiji. Uh, <laughs> and I uh, just kind of following him around for, for a day in his, his Fiji resort. And, um, I was really impressed by what I saw because it also, I got that same feeling when looking at what he was doing, the music that uh, the people, because he was, as he was leaving, he was going to leave his resort for the day. The people who work there appreciate him so much that they actually showed up and they sing, every time he leaves the island, they sing this traditional song uh, to send him off. And he knows the song, and he's clapping enthusiastically, and uh, he's smiling, and he's, you know, he, you could just feel the uh, love and passion he had for everyone there. You could feel the love and passion they had for him right back. Uh, but the environment, everything about it was a this, what I call a cultivated uh, environment, just like what Disney, Disney World tends to be, um, where it's all about your experience. And it's all about making your experience as pleasant and memorable as it can possibly be. You're creating, you know, the whole idea of Disney World, from the moment you get online to start scheduling a vacation to the moment you, uh, you know, get back on the plane to go home, it's a crafted experience. That's what I'm after. <clears throat> so, I, dig I digress. <laughs> uh, 
the point was, uh, I was telling you why I, I subscribed to YouTube, why I w went ahead and uh, paid the, the paid subscription and even paid extra to have my family added to it. Um, for one, now I can play YouTube videos uh, with my phone's screen turned off, right? Uh, which in and of itself wasn't a big enough draw for me for, for the most part, uh, but it is convenient. It means that I can have these videos going. Well, the reason I started doing that is because I started really tuning in to all these different like self-help and um, motivational videos that are out there. Uh, part of my morning routine is to play one of these videos while I'm getting ready. I got my AirPods in, I'm brushing my teeth. I've already done you know some of my reading and everything for the morning. I'm uh, uh, I'm I'm already kind of jazzed up. I've got my um, list of like affirmations and things I'm visualizing and all this stuff that I do, right? And I get myself jazzed up and powered up and I listen to one of the motivational videos while I'm active doing something else. Um, and uh, I used to, I still kind of do this and when Kara's out of town, I, I crank it up, but I used to hang my phone on a hook that's in our shower and, and play these videos while I showered. Uh, but it, it keeps, you know, Kara can hear it and I'm so, she says it's fine, but I'm self-conscious about it. So I don't do that. Um, but the reason I, I did all this is because, all right, so that's one part of the resourcefulness of, uh, and usability of, uh, YouTube. Uh, there's also, it has YouTube music comes with a subscription. Uh, it doesn't force me to have commercials. Um, I don't like commercials interrupting my experience. That's where we jumped off earlier. And, uh, so I've got all this going. That's a big. Those are big pluses. But I I found that you know I'm using YouTube for practically everything, um, in terms of how I learn and what I learn. If I need to know something, yesterday I wanted to know how to uh, um, remove room noise and hiss from a uh, audio track I was editing in um, Final Cut. So I went on YouTube and I found a clip and he walked me right through it. Um, so if I need to learn how to use a piece of software, if I want to see a review, in-depth reviews about a product I'm considering purchasing, uh, you know, I'm looking at uh, camper vans. So I, I am looking at all the various camper vans and I'm finding side-by-side -side videos, I'm finding walkthroughs, I'm finding in-depth reviews. Um, I, uh, I use this to, um, <clears throat> to research things that I write about history especially if i if i want to find some quick insight about you know str some strange quirk of history um i want to get more in depth on something i read in one of my books i want to see it i want to experience it uh if i if i want to get a feel for what it would be like to walk through uh a cathedral in rome if i want to uh get a feel for what it's like to be on a beach in uh in fiji or or elsewhere Hawaii or whatever. Um, so, and uh, I use it for inspiration. So, if I am, uh, if I'm trying to, you know, get my head around the idea of, you know, I want to own this this camper van and I want it to be cool and I want to, you know, I want to own a jet. I want to own. I want to live in Golden Oak in the middle of Disney World. It's a very cool neighborhood, by the way. Um, if I want to. Uh, you know, anything I want to do, I go find videos and I immerse myself in that. We have um, human beings. This is my this is my master's of education uh, kicking in and my study of psychology. Uh, we have different learning modalities. 
we are we generally fall into one of three categories. You could arguably say there are four, um, but for the most part, traditionally we say there are three. There is the uh, visual learner, the auditory learner, and the tactile kinesthetic learner. Tactile kinesthetic, he said. <laughs> A difficult word for the word slinger to say. Um, and uh, that means, you know, what we see versus what we hear versus what we touch and do. That's where the could be four comes in. Uh, could be touch, could be uh, activity. So um, this is uh, these these three slash four uh, learning modalities. We're each dominant in one or the uh, one of the three, and uh, a lot of times we are a mix of a couple. I am um, an auditory learner, and with uh, my sort of sub learning is uh, visual. So, you know, watching videos and listening to videos, very helpful to me. Uh, now, uh, we are all, all three of these learning modalities, just to varying degrees. So if we can engage these modalities as often as possible, we will uh, learn faster and we'll produce the uh, you know, little tendrils of, of uh, nerve fiber in our brains. We'll We'll go out and you know, we'll make connections. The more connections you have, the the deeper your learning, and the more integrated it is with your uh, the way you think and the way you um, live. So, your thoughts dictate how you live. They dictate, you know, the thoughts that you have are going to dictate the kind of life you have. So, we want to uh, we want to feed those thoughts and make them good thoughts. <laughs> Science. There's real science behind all this, uh, and I encourage you to go out and and uh, skeptically and objectively review everything you find, because there is a lot out there that's going to be very useful to you uh, if you if you put your head and heart into it. So, um, YouTube, I found, engages two of my major learning modalities very easily, uh, and then of course putting into practice the things that I learned there engages tactile kinesthetic and uh, and so I learn quicker and uh, deeper I get better at this so <clears throat> that is an example of one of my go-to resources now I have others and you do too um, but you should start thinking about what resources you have and how you can put them to work as an author this is invaluable because some of the limitations that people come to me with uh, when they when they're talking about a writing career they say, I don't have time to write. I don't have money for marketing. I don't have time for marketing. Um, I don't have connections. I don't understand ad, uh, ad platforms. Um, I'm not good at math. I am, you know, uh, inherently lazy. Or I'm a terrible speller. Uh, I can't edit my own work, but I can't afford to pay someone to edit for me. I am not a designer, so I can't design my own covers, but I can't afford to pay someone to design my own covers design my covers um so these are all limitations we kind of put on ourselves and the way you uh overcome limitations is you start thinking about what resources you do have so you let's 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 just all agree agree with me on this we're going to stop thinking in terms of our limitations and start thinking in terms of our resources and capabilities uh so every time you uh come up against a problem you should ask, you should stop and ask, what do I have? Who do I know? What can I do that would help me 
solve this problem? And if I can't solve the problem with the resources I have, what resources do I need? And then you can ask the same question. Okay, I need, I need $300 to have a cover designed. Uh, which, by the way, you can get a cover for a lot less than $300. But it, let's just say you've decided, I need $300 to get this cover designed. Now you need to apply your resources to, how do I get $300? Not... Uh, don't focus on, you know, you want to know, you want to think about the end result, but you don't want to focus on, I don't have the money to do this and therefore it can't be done. Now it's where, where can I get 300 bucks? I have an old iPad. Can I sell that for a hundred bucks? I have, um, uh, there are a ton of, of, uh, aluminum cans lying around my neighborhood. Can I pick those up and sell that for a few bucks? Uh, you know, can I donate blood for a few bucks? (laughs) If you are determined and you are thinking uh, about resources, if you are using what I call resource thinking, which means you are always cognizant, aware, conscious of the resources you have, then you will find a way to solve whatever problem you're facing. And this, this extends well beyond writing, but in terms of us as writers, as authors, we, uh, we have so many more resources than we sometimes think we do. Um, do let's just, let's just focus on the cover. So, uh, $300, maybe that's out of our range. There are resources out there that will allow us to have a cover, uh, for a lot less than $300. In fact, there's at least one resource that would let you build a cover for free. And, uh, and that is Canva. And there are others, there are other tools like this, but Canva actually has for eBooks, uh, at least there is a, um, there's a free eBook template built into Canva and uh, there are free photo, um, stock photos available and there are free text treatments available. Uh, so all these things can be, now this is pretty basic stuff. You're not going to do anything super fancy with this, but I, when I first started writing thrillers, um, I uh, created my cover, mocked it up in, in Canva first. Now, I, I'm good at Photoshop, good at design, but I, I wanted to kind of, I was feeling around, actually, just, just checking things out and trying to figure out, like, what style do I want to go with? And I came across a, uh, a template and thought, you know, that is actually quite nice. And um, I built, I mocked my cover up in that template, and it looked great. But I wasn't entirely satisfied with it. There were some things I wanted to do with the image that I can't do in Canva. Uh, and I happen to have the resource of Photoshop and the resource of Photoshop skills. Now, let's say that I didn't. What if I built the free cover in Canva, said I like the style, but I would prefer the image look this way, or I'd prefer the, you know, some changes here or there. Now you can use a, a service like Fiverr, which... I don't recommend going to, to Fiverr and just getting a cover um, because sometimes they'll make covers and uh, there are little issues like um, this This same cover is used by their other 300 clients. And so now you've just got the exact same cover as 300 other books, right? So there's little problems like that. But if you were to take the mock-up you built in Canva, all right, and uh, you go to Fiverr and you say, okay, I would like a, um, a a cover, and you, if you're willing to do it for five bucks, twenty bucks, you know, whatever, 
I will pay you the money, but I would like it to resemble this, and but here are my notes about how I'd like it to be changed. And you'll find a designer willing to do that, and you're willing to do it for fairly cheap. Because um, <clears throat> these are people who are, they, they have developed, taken the time to develop a skill. They're looking for little ways to earn a little extra cash doing it. They probably don't spend a ton of time. And if you come to them with a design, one, you know that that design isn't going to be on 300 other books. Two, you shorten the amount of time it takes for this person to do the work so they can get you results pretty quickly. And three, you already know you, you have control over what the end result is going to be like. You have some influence over it. So um, that is just an example of how do I apply the resources that I have to get what I want. You're not always going to be able to come up with the 300 bucks, right? You know, if I, I want a uh, camper van, um, the camper van that I want is currently out of my price range. Uh, but I have other resources that, that can get me closer to it. So I, uh, I set aside money. I, uh, I make plans, I make contacts, um, I, I, I start moving things. And what I'm doing is, and we, we've heard this word before, I'm immersing myself in the idea of getting this van. When I go on YouTube and I study uh, a skill or I look into a product I want or I you know, um, am looking for motivation or you know, just educating myself, I'm immersing myself in that research. I'm engaging as many of my modalities as I can. And remember, the more you can engage all three modalities, the stronger those synaptic connections are going to be, the deeper the learning and the better your life. <clears throat> so thinking in terms of resources, resource thinking gives you uh, a better chance of accomplishing the things that you want to accomplish. You should always be looking around, man. Every, when I'm out walking the streets, if I pull into a parking spot at a grocery store, I'm looking on the ground. What's around? Oh, there's a coat hanger over there. You know, I'll, I'll pick that up on my way out. <laughs> I'll throw that away. But I could, if I need it, I could use that coat hanger. If I lock my keys in my truck, I know there's a coat hanger right there. Uh, oh, look, a nickel. I'll, I'll just pocket that. Now, my, my habit when I find money on the ground, by the way, is to uh, be grateful for it. I say, um, I'm a Christian, so this is kind of a prayer. It's like an aphorism prayer, but I say, uh, all money is welcome here, and I am receiving now. Thank you, Lord. And then I put the money in my pocket, and then when I get home, you can't see it back there, but there's a little jar that I drop money into. Last year, uh, in a one-year span of time, I picked up like you know $68 in loose change. So I'm not saying anything, just pointing out that's what happened. Uh, <laughs> so um, I'm looking for resources. Um, when I'm in grocery stores and, and big box stores and uh, Walmart and Target and places like that, uh, one of my favorite things, by the way, is to go to like dollar stores and, and big lots and Harbor Freight, places like that. And I'm not going to buy a thing. I'm not there to buy a thing. Uh, I am there to look and see what they have and to, to add it to the catalog of my, uh, my mental resources. So uh, Harbor Freight, by the way, one of my favorite places, is cheap tools. Um, and uh, there's an argument I heard from someone that, yeah, you can get a table saw, 
for you know half the price of a of a you know good name brand table saw but you know you're probably going to be able to use that like 10 or 20 times and then something's going to go wrong with it and uh and i i thought i thought you know that's true and i i do believe in get the uh resource that you can uh reasonably afford when you need it buy a tool for half the price buy it used whatever uh use it until you can upgrade it that's the that's the way i operate um these days i'm able to buy pretty much the name brand right off the bat so that's great but you know i still like to uh if i if i know i'm not going to use that tool a lot or if i know i'm not going to you know uh, use this this i'm not going to use this service often so instead of subscribing i just pay as i go you know um i'll do that and then when i when it's time i can upgrade Uh, you should always think in those terms but i thought you know if i buy this table saw for half the price and it peters out after 10 or 20 uses let's say i get a two years out of it um i can buy a second table saw and i've still only spent about i've still only spent what i would have spent on that one table saw so i haven't really lost anything if i can get another two years out of this one that's great now at that point maybe i should go ahead and upgrade to the better saw <laughs> but i now i've basically have given myself some time to build up that other resource we like which is money uh to buy an upgraded version of what i have so i am always looking at um getting it's this is that mvp mentality the minimal viable product or minimum viable product um but that mentality is uh, to do the absolute best you can do with the resources you currently have with the idea that you will upgrade or improve or evolve over time. So when I release a book, this is not me saying, throw it up there without any editing, throw it up there with the crappiest cover you can come up with, you know, whatever. It's me saying, stop, what resources do I have to get it to as good a quality, as high a quality as I can manage in the time frame that I have? What do I have and, and, and what would it take to do that? <clears throat> and what am I, where am I lacking? What am I going to need? Because now I'm thinking, what resource do I add to my arsenal so that I don't I'm not limited by my by these current resources. Now I'm looking to improve the resources, add resources, right? So uh, this is how I think and I believe that this is going to be useful to people, especially authors. And I think this is actually applicable to every aspect of your life. But if you just use this as an author, uh, I think you're going to come out pretty happy. Uh, in terms of editing, you know, one of the challenges I had early on was uh, early in my career, I could not afford to pay editors. I was spending, I spent thousands of dollars uh, trying to get my books perfect and still got complaints that they were, there were typos and other issues. Uh, and uh, it was just a waste of money. It was just a waste. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I know a lot of editors. You're amazing people. Um, but uh, I, I, I think throwing that much money at, at something and getting, a result that was only marginally better than what I could have done all on my own for free, uh, it put a bad taste in my mouth. So uh, that said, I think you, I should have, and I now do, but if I pay for a service like that, I demand a certain level of excellence 
in, uh, in what someone's providing me. So that's on me. That's not the editor's fault. I paid them thousands of dollars and didn't get a, a good result. It's, it's my fault because I didn't look back at the result and say, hey, I spent this much money with you, a few hundred bucks per book or whatever, uh, and I did not get the result I was expecting. So can I hold you accountable for going back and making sure it's correct? Here's what I found. So that's my work in that, in that role. That's my work in producing that result. Um, and so I take a hundred percent responsibility for it and therefore it's, I'm not a victim anymore. I'm in control, right? <laughs> so same thing, uh, whatever aspect of your career, uh, you know, now, um, I, when it comes to editing, I have a street team. So I do my edit and I have software. Now I've invested over time. Uh, I've paid for the software. I pay subscriptions and I, you know that sort of thing. And because of that, I now have a new resource. What I've done is as I as I expanded and grew and my financial resources went up, I reinvested in my business. I reinvested in my author business so that I had tools that would help me solve some of my recurring problems. D- have I? F- have I finally solved the uh, typo problem 100%? Not yet. I still get some typos. I still get people. Uh, I have one reader who uh, just, he's like, I would have given you five stars, but I'm, I have OCD and uh, there were just too many, too many typos. Uh, now, this is after round and round and round of, of edits from me, from my street team, from uh, a paid editor. Um, and, uh, you know, so th- I didn't get rid of them. I didn't find them. That's on me. But uh, it was funny because he writes to tell me um, I have too many errors. And he says, T.O. many errors. <laughs> you have two T.O. many errors. <laughs> and my OCD won't allow me to give you a five-star review because you have T.O. many errors. Anyway, um, that's irony. So, uh, but... Here, here's the thing. Uh, there's a couple of ways for me to think of that too, because I can think of it as, uh, oh, this guy, you know, Ugh, roll my eyes, grumble. Uh, I could have cussed him out if I wanted, I guess, you know, but that's not me. Uh, I could have been ungrateful. I could have been negative. I could have just deleted the email and never even responded to the guy. What I did instead was I sent him an invitation to join my street team, uh, because he doesn't have to be good at the writing in order to help me be good at the writing. Uh, but I, but I had to decide, you know, I'm actually grateful because now that guy's another resource. My readers are as much a resource as my street team, as the editors I might pay as, as anyone else that's part of my team. I, we're all in this together. They're going to help me make those books better. So, um, that's what I mean. You should stop, pause, think, Look at the the things that are in your life and ask yourself, how can I apply this to that? I have this problem. What tools do I have to solve the problem? And, uh, and look past the limitations, you know, start asking questions. Asking questions is a beautiful way to engage resource thinking. If you are, uh, if you're just saying to yourself, oh, I don't have the money. I can't get a good cover. I can't get an editor. I, I can't market. I don't understand it. Um, you are affirming to yourself. You're saying to yourself, this is it. We've come this far. We can go no further. These are the limits. Here's the blocks. Here's the walls. Uh, look 
subconscious, look, self, this is what stands between us and our dream. It's impassable. And your self, your subconscious, yourself, who you are, says, yeah, you're right. We should go back to uh, flipping burgers. We should go back to, uh, you know, to working our nine to five. We should go back to whatever it was we were doing this, you know, this time last month. Uh, this, this book thing is a sham. This book thing doesn't work out. Right? You told yourself that. Now, instead, ask yourself some questions. How can I get a cover? I need a cover. How can I get a cover? What do I have that would allow me to get to a good cover? What are other covers? What do they look like? You know, what what are covers that are in my genre? Okay, how do I get a cover like that with what I have? I have $20. How do I get that cover for $20? I have no money. How do I get that cover with no money? Ask yourself that and then go ask Google that. Go ask YouTube that. Go ask other authors that question. You start building these questions. How can I edit my my manuscript when I have no money? How can I market myself when I don't understand Facebook ads or AMS ads? Um, How can I, you know, reach an audience? How can I build a mailing list when I I don't, I don't have an email management system? I don't have, um, the money to pay for active campaign or, or, uh, I had, you know, whatever. So there are so many ways to answer these questions. And if you're looking for email management, you know, MailChimp is the go-to free tool, just use it. And people will say all kinds of things. Uh, it's, exp- it's expensive once you get past the 2000, the free 2000 limit, it has limitations, you know, of course, everything that is free is going to come with some limitation, but if you are resourceful, if you are always thinking, how can I use this, squeeze the most out of it. How do I make this lemon into an Arnold Palmer? What do I need? And then you go fill the needs. Go answer the questions. Go seek the answers to the questions. This is how you do it. This is how you do it. This is, there is no secret to succeeding as an author or anything else in your life. There is no secret. It is all wide out in the open. You just have to decide this is what you want to do, and you have to ask yourself the right questions, and then you have to go looking for the answers. Seek, and you will find. So, that's it. Uh, we're we're at 35 minutes, so we're a little over what I was aiming for. I told you I'd go for at least 20 minutes on that. Uh, but um, I'm really glad you tuned into this one. This, this uh, of course, is a passionate one for me, so I hope that came through. I'm sure that came through. I, I'm feeling all pumped up and jazzed right now. Um I've done some stuff recently. I can't wait to let you know. I, um, I'll, I'll, well, here's a here's a sneak peek. I I created a I, I don't particularly like book trailers as a tool for trying to drum up readers. Um, I don't think that most book trailers are worthwhile. And uh, in fact, I don't think any book trailers are necessarily worthwhile for getting new readers. Um, but what I decided to do was build. I wanted to. I've I've had in mind an idea to build a trailer for my books, uh, I decided to just jump at it. And really what it was about was I had all these resources. <laughs> this is where this came from, I think. Um, I had all these resources. I had access to a, st- a large stock video and photo library. I have access to all this software. Uh, Nick Thacker, uh, his Sonata and Scribe, which you heard the commercial uh, between the interview and this segment. Um, Sonata and Scribe, he will create a... Um, 
an original score for your book or any other project, go to sonataandscribe.com, sonata and and scribe.com. There is a link in the show notes. Um, so uh, no excuses, go find it. Very reasonable prices for this stuff. But I had these tracks. I had like four or five tracks of uh, original music. And uh, I had all this stock footage. I'm a writer. <laughs> so I wrote a script. I used to be in film and TV. So I know how to do a, a side-by-side uh, two-column AV script. I did that based on the footage I found. Based on the idea of uh, the, the book, uh, Quelo Medallion. I did one for Quelo Medallion. So I... And uh, I've got uh, a voice, and I've got a audio gear, so I recorded a VO. Um, I've got apps that do a little bit effects and things. There was some footage I I needed that didn't exist anywhere that I could find, so I created it using the tools that I have, the resources that I have. Throughout that entire process, I asked, what what would I what would it take to do this? What do I need to do that? How do I accomplish that result? You know. How do I remove the hiss from this this audio track in Final Cut? Because I didn't do it in um, in GarageBand where I recorded it. How do I remove that room hiss? And I, I I answered those questions. I went and looked, and I found the answers. And now I got this really cool trailer, which I will debut soon. You'll just keep an eye out. It'll probably go out in the next couple of days. Um, it's not meant to necessarily sell the books. It's really kind of meant as, it's almost an homage to the people who've already read the books or to the person who's on the fence about trying out a book. And I'm going to experiment with it. It doesn't hurt me at all or cost me anything to build it. So if it's effective, that's amazing. If it doesn't do anything to nudge the needle, that's fine too. One of the things it did do for me, and this is something I really want you to take home, is I got excited about it. I'm creating. I'm a creator. That's what you are. We're we're content creators. We whatever your skills, you've got a way to, you've got this creative impulse inside of you. To me that's God trying to get out. That's God trying to make more of the universe. That's what I believe that impulse is. So, uh however you like to frame it, uh God bless you. I hope I hope you have something that makes you feel explosively powerful. That's what this did for me. That's what doing this trailer did for me. It doesn't matter whether anybody else likes it. It doesn't matter whether it, it brings me a single reader. Uh, it doesn't matter at all what the, what the outcome is for it. I have a, a, some outcome in mind, but it's already served the greatest of its purpose. The greatest chunk of its purpose, which is to fire me up. It got me fired up. So you should do the same. You should go out, look at your resources and, and ask your questions and look at a problem and ask a question. How do I solve that problem? Not that. Don't ask that. Don't say, how do I solve that problem? You can. That's where you can start. But say, um, I know that a solution exists. What is the solution to that problem? That's a good question. That gets you thinking. Has anyone dealt with that problem before? Could I Google that problem? Could I reach out to my author community to to ask people how they solve that problem? What resources do I have that will let me get the result I want? That's what I want you to take home from all this. So I was wrapping it up and then I got all fired up again. So (laughs) Uh, anyway, I hope you are having a wonderful week. Hope you have a fantastic weekend ahead. Uh, I am, uh, I'm, I, 
I want you to know how grateful I am uh, for you just being here, for you caring enough, listening enough. Please feel free to share this video with other authors, with anyone really, uh, that you think would benefit from it. Um, go and subscribe on YouTube. Uh, go and subscribe on uh, iTunes. Uh, just search Wordslinger Podcast. Uh, and uh, hop on over if you are interested in uh, thrillers at all. Or any of uh, any of the stuff I'm doing. If you just want to see how I handle my mailing list, because I think I have a fairly unique way of handling my mailing list, uh, it's very personable. Um, but uh, go get on that list. Go, you get a free ebook. It's only available to people who subscribe. Uh, you can get that free ebook from my list at kevintomlinson.com. Uh, there will be a pop up that comes up. There's all kinds of little icons to click on. Just just go find it, and that will. Uh, and you can go to kevintomlinson.com slash join me if, uh, if, if, if all else fails. <laughs> it's all, man, I got as many ways to get you into that funnel as I can. Uh, but if you just want to learn how that, how I do that, how that works, get some ideas, uh, use me as a resource and I am your resource. And I, I do want you to take that away as well. I am your resource. I do this work because I love it. Because I am passionate about it, because I'm passionate about you and this community and uh, this career. And you can ask me anything, anytime. And the way to reach me is at kevintomlinson.com or wordslingerpodcast.com. They both go to the same place because I'm just that lazy. So, God bless each and every one of you. I hope you have a fantastic weekend ahead. Uh, I really do love you. And I will see you all next time. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Wordslinger Podcast. Now, you can support this show by visiting wordslingerpodcast.com. That's where you're going to find back episodes, books by me, and links to anything and everything Wordslinger. And be sure to subscribe to this show on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and anywhere else fine podcasts are sold. I'm Kevin Tomlinson. Thanks for tuning in. We'll check you next time. Wordslinger.